0: This message was presented at the GYC 2016 Conference, When All Has Been Heard, in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good evening, everyone. I trust that the Lord has blessed you today. Amen? The word of God says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And I want to tell you, brothers and sisters tonight, I have never tasted and I have never seen anything better than God. In my my personal time of developing the presentations for GYC, it has been a special time that I've had together with the Lord, and I covet the same experience for each one of you. I believe that the Lord has another blessing for us here this evening, and I have made the decision that the Sabbath is going to end when I'm done preaching. Is that okay? We're going to linger. I know the sun has set, but we're going to linger on that beautiful blessing that God has given to us on the Sabbath. Would you bow your heads with me as we begin this evening with a brief word of prayer? Merciful God and ever-loving Father. We come to you tonight with a desire in our hearts to hear a message from you. Lord, we have our Bibles in our hands and we have minds that are willing to hear the Holy Spirit speak to us tonight. So, Lord send the presence of your Spirit here, I pray. And may we be blessed as we linger in your presence. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. How is the subject of the judgment relevant to a GYC attendee tomorrow as they get in their car or as they get on a plane and travel back home. How is the subject of the investigative judgment relevant to you on Monday when you go back to school or work or whatever it is that you start on Monday? How is the subject of the judgment relevant to you when you go about your business uh, uh, around town or taking care of various tasks In your daily life, how is the judgment relevant in our everyday life? Today, by God's grace, I want to share with you something from the Bible that I believe will help us to see the relevance of this subject today in the time that we are living in. It's practical application, if you will. As I have studied this out in my personal uh, preparation time, this has been a subject that has challenged me to my core. I pray that the challenge is the same for you. The subject of passage that's been chosen for the theme of this great convention, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Again, I repeat, the Bible says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. We're familiar with the passage. And maybe passages like this perhaps leave you feeling a little helpless and hopeless. Maybe passages like this make you feel like you are never going to make it into the kingdom of heaven. The thought of your entire life in all of its hideous details being reviewed by somebody, it makes you shudder when you think about it. Yet the fact still remains that the Bible tells us there is a time of judgment and we are living in it right now. I fear that for some of us when we read passages such as this in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 that we think uh, that that we th- uh, that, that we think it when we think about it uh, that we cross our fingers in hope that maybe we might just happen to slide through and make it through on the time of judgment that maybe we hope that if we do something good enough that God will recognize that good deed and will take it and allow us to make it through on the time of judgment. Now I'm here to tell you this evening that the Word of God offers something better than luck. That the Word of God offers something better than just chance. And I want to share with you a passage of Scripture that is spoken to my heart. And I invite you to turn, with me, turn there with me, if you would, to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. And we're going to look at verse 17. 1 John chapter 4. And we are going to look at verse 17. Beautiful passage of Scripture here. The Word of God says this. Herein is our love made perfect that we might have boldness in the day of judgment because as He is So are we in this world. The question I want to ask you is, can I have boldness in the day of judgment, yes or no? There is no question about it. The Word of God tells us that we don't have to cower at the time of judgment, but that we can have boldness boldness. In fact, in the Greek, it tends to give the idea of cheerful courage in the time of the judgment or confidence in the time of judgment. When we are brought, when our cases are brought in review before God, we can have hopeful expectation that by God's grace working in and through us that we can be found as conquerors in the eyes of God. We can have boldness In the day of judgment. Now the question then is, how do I have boldness in the day of judgment? This is a great question. How can I have that cheerful expectation, that cheerful courage, that confidence on the day of judgment when I know that my records are going to be reviewed? How do I get that, preacher? Well, go back to the text with me if you would and let's let it plainly speak to us this evening. The Bible says herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Don't miss it. The Bible tells us that our boldness in the day of judgment comes by having our love perfected. So then the question is, How do I have my love perfected? Let's just let the Bible continue to speak to us here this evening. In verse 12 of the same chapter, going up a few verses, the Bible tells us this. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, listen to this. God dwelleth in us and His love is what, everybody? His love is perfected in us, the Bible says. Don't miss it. How is our love perfected? It is perfected when we allow God to give us love, not just for Him, but for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. There's no question about it. The Bible is clear. It is not necessary for us to be fearful in the time of judgment. In fact, in this very chapter of 1 John chapter 4, John tells us that perfect love casts out, finish it for me, All fear. We can have boldness, confidence in the day of judgment when our cases are brought before God if we have that perfected love for God and for one another. Now, I want to give you a snapshot of what this looks like in the Bible. You have your Bible, so go with me, if you would, to Matthew, the 25th chapter. Matthew, the 25th chapter. And here we will see a snapshot from our Savior himself, That he is going to give us of what this perfected love, what this pure love, what this divine love, what the love of Jesus looks like in practical manifestation. Again, we're looking at how can I have confidence in the day of judgment by having my love perfected. What does that look like? Matthew chapter 25. And we're looking at verse 31. The Bible says, it would begin in verse 31. The Bible says this. When the son of man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory and before him shall be gathered all nations and he shall separate one from another as a sheep divideth or sorry as a shepherd divideth the sheep from his goats verse 33 and he shall set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. When Christ comes, there will be two groups. There will be the converted and the unconverted. There will be no middle ground. Verse 34. Then shall the king say unto them, on his right hand, Come, Ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. How many of you here tonight want to hear Jesus say that to you? Amen? Amen. Lord Jesus, please let that be what you say to me. Come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verse 35, four. So he's giving the reason why they can inherit the kingdom of God. For I was and hungered and you gave me meat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him saying, Lord when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, in so much as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, what does it say? You have done it unto me. Now, don't miss it. Why do the righteous inherit the kingdom of heaven? It is obvious that the righteous have done a lot of good things. It is, right, it is, it is obvious that the righteous have done a lot of things right. But when it all comes down to it, when Jesus boils it down, he puts his finger on one reason. And as that, the reason that he points to is that they, have, uh, that they have ministered to him through ministering to the needs of those around them. I would submit to you tonight that the overarching reason is that they have had the character of Christ perfected in their lives. And that character of Christ is not just a theoretical thing, but it is seen in the expression and the actions of their life. How they help those around them. (coughs) Those who inherit the kingdom of God, listen to me carefully, they do not have a theoretical religion. It's not just here. But it's in their life. It's how they live. In the book of James, James chapter 1, the Bible tells us, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. To visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. The religion of the righteous compels them to works of benevolence, meeting the needs of those around them the word for love in 1st john the perfected love is the word agape you're familiar with it you've heard it before but recently i have i've dug into this this subject that 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 is very familiar to us and what i have found in my study of agape has really been mind blowing and this is what jesus is describing here in matthew chapter 25 he is describing in in an example in vivid terms what agape looks like you see agape is not something that we as humans see very often Human love is something that has to be reciprocated. You give somebody love, they give love back to you and therefore that love exists. Oftentimes when the other party ceases to love you, that love begins to grow cold unless it is agape love. Because agape love is a special kind of love that can stand on its own without needing to be reciprocated to that's why Jesus was able to make statements such as this love your enemies. Do your enemies reciprocate that love? Absolutely not. But that's agape. When you see the love of God, when you see the love of God the Father, He loved the world so much, He loved the world so much that it compelled Him to do what He could to redeem fallen men. And this is what Jesus is describing here in Matthew chapter 25. He is describing what agape looks like, that God's people in the last days that are living in the hour of God's judgment, they will be compelled to works of charity because the character of Christ is in them. I love this statement from nine manuscript releases page 128. Listen to it carefully. It's a one-liner. She says a loving lovable Christian. What kind of Christian everybody? Now listen to me carefully. It's one thing to be loving It's another thing to be lovable. Come on now, amen? Amen. A loving, lovable Christian, listen to this, is the most powerful argument in favor of the truth. Let the people of God say amen. amen. A loving, lovable Christian is the most powerful argument in favor of the truth. And I want to tell you tonight that the world is starving for a manifestation of this today. All around us, the world is looking for a religion that is not theoretical but is experienced in somebody's life. That the knowledge that they have has taken such deep root in their hearts that it becomes who they are and how they act. It's, it's, it's befuddling to me that much of the charitable work that is done in the world is done by Gentiles kind of fits the story of the Good Samaritan, doesn't it, brothers and sisters? And I praise the Lord for those quote-unquote Gentiles that are doing the work of benevolence. I praise the Lord for their work to try to lift up humanity, but shame on us. The world is looking for demonstration of the character of Christ and His people. The story goes on. Verse 41, the Bible says this. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. These people must have done something pretty bad. Verse 42, For or because, this is the reason why. I wasn't hungered, and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you took me not in. Naked, and you clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, and you visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? It's almost like they said, Lord, if we had known it was you... Then we would have done something. Verse 45, then Jesus says, then shall he answer them saying, Verily I say unto you, in so much as you have done it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And we want to hit the delete button on verse 46. But we don't do that. The Bible says, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. That's a promise. That is a promise. Why did the goats lose out on heaven? Notice that Jesus did not list all of the bad things that they did. Of course they did bad things. But Jesus does not list those bad things that they have done. What Jesus does is he goes to the heart of the issue. He goes to what, he doesn't talk about what they, did, what they did, he talks about what they did not do. And he says, this is the reason why. Because those around you that were in need, you did not reach out to them and help them. Listen to this from the book, Desire of Ages. This is Ellen White's commentary on this story the very beginning part of the chapter, she says this. Thus Christ on the Mount of Olives pictured to his disciples the scenes of the great judgment. What is the scene here in Matthew 25? The great judgment. And he represented, don't miss this point. Listen to me carefully. And he represented its decision as turning upon one point. Did you catch the significance of that? Turning upon one point, when the nations are gathered before him, there will be but two classes and their eternal destiny will be determined by what they have done or have neglected to do for him in the person of the poor and the suffering. Tell me, brothers and sisters, this is important stuff here. She is telling us that when it comes to the judgment, it is hinging on this one thing here that uh, those who minister to the poor or who who do not minister to the poor, it is hinging upon this point. The implications of this parable are explosive. The one point that the whole judgment turns on is the point that will determine the destiny of every person in the world. It is how much I have cared for Christ in the person of the suffering and the poor. Simply put, it is have they had agape perfected in their hearts? Have they had the character of Christ in their lives? Listen, the righteous, what they did will reveal what they had. And what they had is the character of Jesus. And it was seen in what they did. How many times have you walked past a homeless person in your life? And maybe here while you were at GYC. How often have you soothed your conscience with the thought, well, if I gave him some money to help him out, he would probably just waste it anyways. I remember not too long ago, 2015, when I was in San Antonio, Texas, for the general conference session. What a tremendous privilege it was to be there. But in the area where I was, li- where I was staying while I was there, there were a, a large number of homeless and downcast people. I would drive past in my truck with all of the things to keep me comfortable and the food to keep me fed, clothes to keep me warm, and I would drive right past them. My heart would go out in sympathy, but I did not lift so much as a finger to relieve their suffering. And as I walked past those poor, downcast people, today I realized that I walked past Jesus and an opportunity to minister to Him in the person of the poor. When GYC comes to Houston, the homeless and the downtrodden should know about it. They should know that the people of God have descended upon the city because of the expression of Christ's character in their lives. So I ask you this evening... If your name was to come up into the come up in the judgment right now based on what Jesus has told us in Matthew 25 what would be the outcome Only you know but I think as uncomfortable as a question like that makes us, it is worth us taking a moment to reflect upon that because Jesus here is clearly outlining what it is that he is looking for in his people when he comes back. It's not the works, but it's his character inside of them that is manifested in the works. Don't misunderstand me here this evening. We are not saved by our works. We believe that we are saved by grace through faith. But we all understand that that salvation that Christ gives to us is manifested in the works of our life. But to be perfectly honest with you here this evening, sometimes I wonder if we wished that the judgment would hinge on how much knowledge we have in our head. Sometimes I wonder if we wish that the, the, that the judgment would hinge upon how much work we have done how many Bible studies we have given, how much scriptural knowledge we have in our head, how many summers we have call how many souls we have won to God. Now, don't get me wrong, brothers and sisters. I'm not preaching a social gospel here. I've dedicated years of my life to public evangelism, and I believe in that work. It is important. It must be done. God has given us a gospel commission. But in Matthew chapter 25, when Jesus separates the sheep and the goats, Jesus doesn't point to that. He points to the manifestation of his character in his people being revealed in the works that they have done in helping the poor and the needy. Too often I think that our church is kind of an either-or. We either do evangelism or we do community outreach. And I don't think it should be an either-or. I, th- I think it should be a both-and. Amen? Amen? And I think when we choose between one or the other, it weakens our witness. If we take the two of them together as Jesus did, I believe that we would see results in our public evangelism that are explosive. When you look at Acts chapter 2, all of those thousands of people that were, that were baptized in one day as a result of Peter's preaching under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, oftentimes Peter's the one that gets the credit for that. But we know that that, that, that harvest came from the seeds that were sown by Jesus in his three and a half years of earthly ministry. And that as those seeds were sown, they brought forth a bountiful harvest when the, the day of, when the Pentecost came and the latter rain fell. And brothers and sisters, how many seeds are we sowing so that when the latter rain falls, we can have an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that will bring a bountiful harvest to the glory of God? Now's the time to be sowing those seeds. Listen to this: "That I may know Him," page three hundred and thirty-four. Listen carefully. When the case of all come in review before God, that's the judgment, the question, what did they profess, is never asked. But what have they done? Let me read that one more time. When the case of all come in review before God, the question, what did they profess, is never asked, but what have they done? And she clarifies what she means by what they have done. Have they been doers of the word? Have they lived for themselves? Or have they been exercised in works of benevolence, in deeds of kindness, in love, preferring others before themselves and denying themselves that they might bless others? And here's the promise. I love promises. If, if, if the record shows self-denial and benevolence, they will receive the blessed assurance and benediction from Christ, well done. Amen. If they have received self-denial, showed self-denial and benevolence, That's what they will hear come from the lips of Jesus. It's the character of Christ practically manifested in the life of. Now, I don't want to dwell on this too much, but I cannot skip over it. It, It's just the stakes are too high. Jesus clearly tells us why it is that the, uh, uh, what he says to those who neglect the poor and needy. He says to them, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Those who find themselves in hellfire will find themselves there for many reasons. But Jesus puts his finger on one of those reasons, and he says it's because they neglect Elected to help those in need. They were more concerned about themselves than they were about other people. And I'm going to tell you something tonight, brothers and sisters. I think there will be some people in that group that have a lot of sound theology in their heads. But that sound theology didn't do much to change the way they live their lives. On the other hand, why do the righteous help the poor and the needy? Why is it that they are willing to spend of their time and their energy to relieve the suffering of humanity? It is because Christ's character is in them and they cannot do anything else but what Jesus did. That's why, simply put. After all, didn't Jesus feed the hungry? Didn't Jesus visit the sick, give water to the thirsty? The the Gospels are full to overflowing with examples of Jesus' life, uh, examples of Jesus' acts of benevolence and love to those that he ministered to. We know from the Gospels that Jesus spent more time ministering to the needs of people than he did preaching. Yet for some reason today we think we need to preach to people more than we need to help them. Lord have mercy on us. Whatever happened to following Christ's method alone for true success? Where the servant of the Lord tells us that he mingled with them. That he showed them sympathy and that he ministered to their needs and won their confidence. And then he bade them, follow me. Whatever happened to following Christ's method alone? Listen, I have heard this quote so many times in connection with soul winning, but I've recently begun to think to myself, do we really believe what that passage says or are we only paying it lip service? We like the idea of bidding people to follow him, but we don't spend much time, energy, and means in the preparatory work. We leave that to the little old ladies in our church to take care of. If some refugees moved into your town or enrolled into your school, would you go out of your way to make friends with those people who are socially outcasts? If a dirty homeless man showed up at your church on a communion Sabbath, would you be the one that walked up to him and said, hey, brother, can I wash your feet? Tonight, I want to ask you a question. As you leave GYC, can Jesus say of you, I was hungry and Jason gave me meat. I was thirsty and he gave me drink. I was a stranger and he took me in. Oh, we don't like that one. We don't like strangers in our house. Naked and he clothed me. I was sick, and he visited me. I was in prison, and he came unto me. I am certain that there are people in our great denomination who Jesus could say this to. I praise the Lord for those people. Keep on working. I know you're in the trenches, and it's difficult. It's a difficult work, but keep going forward because this is the work that Jesus did, and it will bring great harvests to our church one day. However, I fear that this is not the majority. There is a growing concern in my mind that we as a people have come to believe that our entire work is evangelism. And I always have to qualify myself lest somebody misunderstand me. I believe in evangelism. I do it in my churches. I've dedicated my life to it. I believe in evangelism. However, brothers and sisters, the reality of it is this, you can do evangelism and still be selfish. You can do literature evangelism and still be selfish. You'll be more effective if you're not. But you can do it and still be selfish. But I want to tell you something tonight, what Jesus is telling us here in Matthew chapter 25, this is a very difficult work to do selfishly. If all that our work is, is public evangelism, and that is definitely an important part of it, but if that is all we do, if that is where we stop and we don't go where Jesus is taking us tonight, then when Jesus comes in the clouds of heaven, he will not be able to say to you, I was hungry and you gave me meat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. Preaching the gospel is important, but never to the detriment of meeting the needs of those around us. And I believe firmly that if we take Jesus' example that we would see explosive results in our public evangelism. Does it bother you that there are people in your school that nobody hangs out with? What are you going to do about it? Does it bother you that there are visitors who come to your church and nobody invites them home to have a fellowship meal afterwards? What are you going to do about it? Does it bother you that nobody goes and visits the shut-in members in your church? What are you going to do about it? Does it bother you that your community service center at church needs staffing? What are you gonna do about it? Does it bother you that there are people in nursing homes who have nobody that comes and visits them? What are you gonna do about it? Does it bother you that you see homeless people who are cold and miserable? What are you gonna do about it? Does it bother you that there are elderly people who have to bear the shoulder of hard work that they shouldn't have to do in their old lives? What are you gonna do about it? Does it bother you that there are are people in your church who are cold and unfriendly. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Listen to me carefully. In the judgment, telling Jesus I was too busy is not going to cut it. Telling Jesus I was too busy is not going to cut it. I want to tell you a story tonight, in closing, that I believe illustrates this form of evangelism, because it is evangelism. Diana had been notified that she was going to get a new patient. Her name was Corky. According to the notes, she needed intensive nursing care, said that Corky was non Compliant, combative, maladjusted, unmanageable, and terminal. Sounds like the patient everybody wants, right? On the first visit to Corky's residence, Mike answered the door. He showed Diana around the house, how he was remodeling it for Corky. He said, I bought this place for her because she always wanted to live next to the ocean. And I'm going to put her right here in this room where she can look out the window and be able to see. Corky turned out to be just as difficult as her medical history said she was. She had a massive cantaloupe-sized oozing sore underneath one of her arms. And her untreated cancer was causing her horrific pain. She was uncooperative and angry. Twice daily the nurses would come to minister to her needs, give her showers, dress her wounds, take care of the house. And Mike was there around the clock. Day in, day out, he was there helping Corky. Helping her with her pain medication, comforting her tenderly, urging her to eat and drink, taking her pain medication. And usually abusive swearing was all the reward that Mike would get for his work of tenderness and care. Finally, the inevitable day came and Mike and Diana stood over the bed of Corky and watched her chest raise up and go down for the last time. And there she laid on the bed still No signs of pain in her face any longer. Peaceful. Diana looked over at Mike, and this is what she says she saw. He stared at her silently, tears running down his cheeks and dripping off of his chin. His suffering affected me more deeply than Corky's death. Choking back sobs, I mumbled some sort of condolence and finished by saying that he had done more than than most husbands would have done under the circumstances and that she could not have doubted his love. Mike, Looked at Diana sharply, husband? I'm not her husband. I hardly knew her. Seeing the expression of bewilderment in Diana's face, Mike went on. She lived on the streets. That's where I found her. She didn't have anyone who cared about her. I knew she was dying. And I bought this place so that she would have somewhere to go. If I hadn't taken care of her, who would have? She had no one else. That is Matthew 25. That is what Jesus would have done. And Diana said when she looked into the face of Mike, she saw the face of Jesus. There's no question about it, friends. The work that Jesus has outlined for us here in Matthew chapter 25 is a messy and difficult work. There's no question about it. It's a work that provides very little glory to the one who performs it. It's a work that is very hard to quantify its success. There's no gauges or measures. It's hard to come up with solid numbers that reveal the success of this type of evangelism. There's no way that you can really come up with a fancy report that shows the success of meeting the needs of those around you. Because what I have found as I have begun to apply this method of ministry in my life, that as you go around helping those in need, you get very little credit. In fact, 99% of the time, you never see the person again. But Jesus is not concerned with that. He's still working with that person. You were just part of that experience. But he wants to use you to awaken in their hearts that yes, there are people who are Christians, who are believers in God that are willing to help those who are in need. And that seed will grow. It will germinate. They will take it with them. And when they are in the very depths of despair, when they are in the gutter of sin, that seed will germinate and the character of Christ reflected in your life may bring that poor helpless soul to the cross of Jesus. It didn't take a Bible study It just took being friendly And getting involved in the mess of their lives Maybe somebody else will do the Bible study later on Because God wants to lead his people in the truth as well Tonight How many of you want to make the judgment relevant in your life by reflecting the ministry of Jesus? If that's your desire, stand with me this evening. Lord tonight, the last day of 2016, I want to make the judgment relevant. By reflecting the ministry of Jesus in my life in meeting the needs of those around me listen brothers and sisters this is not an easy thing to do what you are responding to is not a flippant thing it's not something that you just do on a whim you are going to spend and be spent you are going to be uncomfortable you are not going to necessarily enjoy it it will not bring you glory but you are showing Jesus that you want to do what he did The book, Desire of Ages, page 641, says this. When we love the world as he loved it, then for us, his mission is accomplished. We are fitted for heaven, for we have heaven in our hearts. Listen, we can't just put this fruit on This work of Matthew 25 has to come from the heart. It has to come from the character of Christ that is in you, the hope of glory. Now I want to take it one step further. Maybe there are some of you here this evening, and in your local church there is not a ministry of Matthew 25 taking place. There, are, there is no ministry where there is reaching out to the needs. Yes, there's Bible studies. Yes, there's literature. Yes, there's evangelism. Yes, there's all of that stuff. And we praise God for that. But the work of Matthew 25 is languishing in your church. And tonight you feel the pricking, the, 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 the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life saying, you are the one tapping you on your shoulder. I want you to start that flame. Maybe your church isn't even interested in doing this And tonight you want to say Lord I don't care If the church doesn't want to do it I'm going to do it myself Maybe your church does have Some sort of Beneficent work that's taking place Reaching out and helping those that are in need But it's struggling To keep its head above water you know, it's, I don't know what it, what it is, but every church I've ever gone to, the community service center, is always run by older people or retired people, and that's a shame. That's a shame on us as young people. And tonight you want to tell the Lord, Lord, I want to take my youthful energy and I want to apply it to the work in my local church, meeting the needs of people in my community. If you fit one of those things and you feel the conviction of God prompting you in that direction, I'm going to ask you to come on forward here and tell the Lord in 2017, Father, I want Matthew 25 to be me. I want Jesus to be able to look at me and yes, see the wedding garment on, but also see it in the practical expression of how I meet those in need around me. Praise God that there are people who are saying, yes, Jesus, I'm going to start this work. Yes, Jesus, I'm going to add my youthful energy to this work. Yes, Jesus, if nobody does it, I will do it. Praise the Lord. Well, those of you that are still contemplating it this evening, we're going to be blessed with the beautiful, special music. And I pray that you would reverently listen to the words and pray them in your heart tonight. This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, when all has been heard, in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.